everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And joining us today, we have a special guest. We are so excited to chat with you guys. We have author Sasha Summers. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Please tell us how your 2021 has been and how are you taking care of yourself this year? Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I am super excited. I have actually did my hair for this and then realized it's a podcast. So anyway, <laughs> I look great. Um, so um, We can attach, she does. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done my hair in like a week. You can ask my husband, don't. Anyways, um, my 2021 has been okay. I mean, it's definitely a vast improvement from 2020. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's be honest. Um, we just got over two weeks of no air conditioning. So today is probably like the best day of 2021. <laughs> um, but, and then as far as how am I taking care of myself? Um, I have a therapy puppy and she has been keeping me pretty sane. I mean, you know, she's a puppy, so she chews things and chases things and barks at things, but overall she's very good for my mental health. I think I need a therapy puppy now. <laughs> the cats may not go for that. Um, <laughs> uh, let's kick this off with some icebreakers. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? I was thinking about this when I when I got your, your questions. I was like, okay, if you know me, you just have to be prepared for laughter at inappropriate times. <laughs> <laughs> we can get behind that. I know. I feel like I'm an inappropriate time laugher. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I think it's like what, you know, the tension builds up and it's like, oh, I need to say something. And then you just start laughing, which normally yeah. is not a good thing. But yeah, totally. It's that nervous laughter, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You sound a little bit unhinged and people kind of are like, should I be afraid of you? Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> like things got awkward. So I'm just going to be like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> What is one of your guiltless pleasures? Guiltless pleasures. It's really boring, but like I get really into the perfectly right Bartlett pear. I know it's sad, but it's true. <laughs> you know, they're good for you, right? So there you go. <laughs> we take all answers. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is probably like buying magazines that I don't read. Okay. See, I do vision boarding all the time. I teach a class on it. So you would totally use them, you know? So just think about it. You could start vision boarding and then you wouldn't need them. Yeah. I'm, I'm like helping you with your addiction there. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the magazines I haven't brought yet. <laughs> the vision board. You just, I totally, my, my mind immediately went to, you need to go to the ATB and get those other two better home and garden magazines. Oh, yeah, that would be a beautiful right? board. I'm just saying. What was your first job? I was a parking attendant in a big parking garage at Texas A&M University. Oh, okay. So I was the little person in the booth, you know, that you yeah. got to yell at. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> the best days were the days when it was like exam day. And so the, the students would wait until right before their exam and the garage would fill up. And so they would honk at me for 45 minutes because they thought somehow I could miraculously make a new space appear. Oh, I wish I could. I really do. But, you yeah. know, so I'm responsible for many kids flunking out, I guess, because they would have missed their exam. <laughs> How old were you? Were you a teenager? I was 18. Yeah. So wow. it was super awkward. 
awkward. Yeah, it was one of those things where it's like, I'm not gonna cry. I would burst into tears as soon as someone yelled at me. That would oh, yeah. be my problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't make eye contact with a lot of people because of that reason. I was like, I'm so sorry. There's not yeah, a spot I, where I promise. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best purchase you've treated yourself to this year? Um, I bought, I finally bought Dragon, the dictating software, and I bought a really cool headset so that with my said, you know, pandemic puppy, I wasn't having to be chained to the um, computer the whole time. I could walk and talk. And it makes for really interesting conversations when your 18-year-old son comes in and you're in the middle of something, you know, but (laughs) I don't know what to do, you know? So, yeah. What's one thing you find yourself nostalgic for? Okay, don't judge me, but there are times I wish we didn't have cell phones. I know that sounds weird. I hear you. But man, you can just fall down the rabbit hole. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. you lose time. And it's like, there's this whole skewed thing, I think, with a lot of social media. You know, everyone has this great life. And so you you can have all sorts of issues. There's, again, working for um, the school district a couple of years ago, there was this whole thing about kids that relied on social media as kind of like their standard or the bar that they were supposed to meet. And that's just mm. such a, a stress, you know, when for mm. me, social media is supposed to be fun. Um, but I have noticed that it's kind of nice just to put the phone away. Um, yeah. You know, I grew up with real answering machines and the long stretched out cords because you were yeah. trying to hide and have private conversations, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah. Somebody's picking up the phone because they didn't know you were on it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. We had like one of those nine foot long cords, but my sister yes. she was in high school, it was stretched so far that it barely had any coil left in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> kept trying to get away. It was like, oh my God. Because we only had the one phone, you know? Um, yes. So yeah. Good times. Yeah. No, I think we're of a certain age and I can remember that uh, hiding in the closet to have a phone mm-hmm. conversation. I didn't get my first cell phone until I was in my early 20s. Uh, and uh, it was just like, but the one thing I remember were party lines. My grandparents had one at the cottage. Yes. And you'd pick up yes. to call and there'd be somebody on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother had the same thing. Yep. It was super. And it was like, they tried to divide up hours, but it never worked. It never worked so. <laughs> I feel like you're in our brains because Sarah and I were literally just having like a late night conversation about this last night. Like yeah. we need put our phones down. I'm on social media too much. And before you know it, it's like an hour has passed and I could have been reading and I could have been doing this. It's true though. You're right. You feel like you just pick it up. And then it's like, oh my gosh, it's new. You know, and I started this at 1115. What the heck, you know? So totally, totally. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I read something recently on Instagram. Here we are talking about social media, but it was was so accurate. So it, it was saying that there, I think I'm part of this like generation that they call like the bridge. So you're, you know, the life of no cell phones and having Mm -hmm. house phones and all of that stuff. But then you saw like cell phones, like really become a thing and the internet really become a thing. And I struggle so much. Like when Sarah and I were talking last night, I'm like, why is it so hard for me to just put the phone down and take a break from it? I know what life was like before they were, you know, these, I remember my mom having a car phone. Like that was my first introduction to a phone (laughs) outside of the house. It really is a struggle. It's like, and I can imagine for for you as an author, because we feel it, that's part of why we were talking about it last night. Like as, Mm -hmm. as, you know, book influencers, quote unquote, it's like, if you're not on for a day, you're missing something or you're following or whatever. So I can only imagine what it's like for you guys as authors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is. It's scary. And then there's that whole fine line um, between 
you know, sharing who you are and promoting your books. Yes. Like you don't want to be the obnoxious author who's like, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. Oh, look, here's a cute picture of me in a bunny suit. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just really random. So I'm, I'm not the best at um, social media, but I, I try. And the only thing that I consistently post is Thor on Thursday, which is today. Woo! Um, because, you know, you have to be loyal. And I'm super loyal to my favorite superhero. We love to hear romance origin stories. Can you share with us how you became a romance reader? Definitely. My grandmother um, was this very prim and proper lady, and she had a bookcase that had the really beautiful glass front and everything, and I you know, don't touch it kind of thing. Well, one day, of course, I did touch it. And inside was this beautiful collection of Barbara Cartland historical romance novels, mm. and I devoured them. I mean, it was just amazing. I have to say, I was a little disappointed with my first kiss because there were no angels and no choir singing and there were no fireworks, which is what, you know, all Barbara Cartland novels ended with. So I was really sad, but, um, but yeah, that was it. I was hooked. And then um, we were taking a trip to England in 88. And yes, I'm, I'm old. Um, and my, I had forgot my book at home. And so my dad was like, here, go buy something at the, the um, bookstore. And of course, I grabbed a Fabio cover. Um, it was a Catherine Coulter, I think it was Nightfire or Nightstorm. I don't remember, but it was, you know, your traditional the clothes are falling off for no reason and they're outdoors kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I was wedged between my sister and my dad reading this pretty steamy book for a 13, 14, 12 year old, 12, sorry, I'm trying to age myself here. I was like sinking down in my seat, right? Because it was like, oh my gosh, if they look over and see these words, I'm going to be in so much trouble. But she was so good. And I haven't read one in a long time. So I actually might go back and be like, hmm. Um, I always remember her heroes being like a quintessential alpha in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody would write them today because they definitely were not in, in any way, shape or form empowering for the women. They were very much the take charge kind of scowly um, alpha broody hero that works now more in paranormal than in contemporary. Cause you know, mm -hmm. we want to have nice guys really. Um, but yeah, as a young girl, the idea of being swept away and being, you know, in a tower with this, you know, tortured man who in the end, of course, becomes this passionate in love with you only kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was really easy to just kind of fall into that escape because it was such a great, you know, the little details that put you there historically. It was fun. Pure escapism. Mm -hmm. I lived in Odessa, Texas at the time. So it was such a huge disconnect. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like a totally different world. Um, but it was fun. At what point in your life did you realize you wanted to pursue writing professionally? It was about 20, 2009, I guess. I'd always written stories just for me. But I found an author that I really liked and reached out to her. And ironically, she lived in the same area. And she said, hey, I'll come pick you up and I'll take you to my writing meeting. Um, and I was like, uh, you know, just kind of in awe, right? And so she literally came and picked me up and took me. And um, all these amazing authors were in the room. And they were just these normal, awesome people. Um, and they had a critique group program. And so I started with that. And my critique group, I'm still good friends with all of them, um, were so supportive and like, yeah, you can totally do this. Um, so it became kind of something that I never thought could be a possibility to, wow, maybe I can. Um, and that, that was kind of it. Once I knew, once I'd finished my first two books, um, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, this is what I need to do. Cause it just, mm -hmm. there was a sense of satisfaction that nothing besides motherhood had given me, you know, that kind of, woohoo, I'm a rock star kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
I feel like these amazing sounding writing critique groups, I mean, obviously we're living during a pandemic, so I know yeah. that they're not happening, but before the pandemic, were they still a thing? Because I just, I just want to know if these things still happen. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't know if new authors still do that. I hope that they mm -hmm. do. I've gotten to the point where, you know, I have a really solid group of writing friends. And so we will get together and do um, writing retreats. And yes, if mm -hmm. one of us gets stuck, then we are more than happy to kind of like talk each other through it. But for the most part, I, I feel bad about it. And there are times when I get to talk to a new author, but I can never say, hey, I will critique you because I, if I'm going to do that, I want to be able to give full attention. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, you don't want to just skim over something and give them something glib. You really want to take the time. So um, they're out there. You just have to make sure that you find people who are going to give as much as they get um, yep. and that are going to build you up and give you positive feedback versus just you know, some, there are some people out there that really, I think they feel better by tearing other people down. You don't want that mm -hmm. as your critique partner. <laughs> no. So it's important to find that that group that you can share with safely um, and that will build you up and believe in you when you don't. Um, so hopefully, I know that there are some um, Romance Writers of America chapters that are still, still going and a lot of them offer um, critique services where they'll match you up with people. So. Yeah, we hear about them all the time. And, and I know I can speak for myself and Brie as well that we are, you know, really trying our own hands at writing and, you know, we have each other to bounce off of. Yay. And it just we hear you, you ladies and talk about these groups. And it just seems like some underground, <laughs> you yeah. know, like some secret society that you need to know the, the password for. And <laughs> it seems so yeah. long on a time to me. I'm like, it does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they do. You just need to find good people. And and I mean, we can talk about that afterwards. I'll see if I can find some good people that are looking because I know that there are always people that are looking for new readers. You know, you want fresh eyes, right? You don't want the mm -hmm. same people to always look over your stuff because they get as familiar with the way you write as you do. Um, That's so fair. Having, yeah. So having a good um, critique group that maybe you don't change each other's chapters all at once, but you kind of rotate off. It can be, mm -hmm. it can be pretty helpful. Awesome. Yeah. And like with reading, like reading is so solitary. I imagine writing can feel very mm -hmm. lonely oh, in a way. Like it just, I like hearing that you guys are so supportive of each other yeah. and actually spend time together. And it, it, it takes, it sounds like it can take a village to write a story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Definitely. And I, I think it's been harder, um, to write without having those retreats or, I mean, mm -hmm. Zoom was great in the beginning, but then you get kind of Zoom exhausted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I do think it's easier or I guess more rewarding to have people that you can talk to because I love my family, but they're not writers. And there are times I know that they are worried about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running through a plot and I'll be like, oh, okay, so I need to do this, this, and this. And there's this pause and you can see this look on their face. And it's like, for my story, hello, it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to have friends like you guys have each other that know you're not, you know, actually planning to kill somebody or torture yeah. somebody. This is just on the page. Hello, my friend, um, she has this great story. She she was a nurse, right? So she's very, she's a great resource and she's hysterical. Um, she was talking about how she'd gone to lunch with some other writers and they were talking about how if someone fell off of a fourth floor, you know, it was a four story tall building and they fell off the roof, would they die? If not, what kind of interest would they sustain? And the people at the table behind them, she's like, you know, <laughs> somebody came up and ran and pushed them off, what would happen? And of course, you know, they're all like, um, and you know, she had to turn around and she's like, no, 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 we're writers. It's okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I was lucky. You're lucky nobody called on you, girl. I'm just saying. <laughs> There's, there's a great question to ask. What's the weirdest thing you've typed into the Google search history of your computer <laughs> and for research? Um, <laughs> gosh, most of it has been like um, different Greek mythology, the different mm. monsters and their origin stories, okay. because um, a lot of my, some of my favorite books are my um, Greek mythology stuff. And so I yes. try to make sure I'm as quote unquote accurate. I know that they're myths. So it's, it's such a weird thing. It's like, I, I try to be authentic to the myth. And my husband's like, it's a myth. And I'm like, okay, stop. <laughs> but you'll get scholars if there's a scholar and they, and they're like, wait, you didn't get this right. Yes. You know, right. Yes. Right. exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, there's been some weird searches about that <laughs> and, you know, um, yeah, you know, cause there's the whole thing about when Pegasus, how Pegasus was born and who the parents were. And it's mm-hmm. a little, it's a little distressing because, you know, yep. when Medusa had her head cut off, he came out. So there you go. Very, <laughs> very non-painful birth story. Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. From what we can find online, it mm-hmm. looks like 2012 is when you began publishing. It would, would you say that's right? Yes. Yeah. That's it. That's right. Um, your first title was was Medusa, which you yes. first published with Crescent Moon Press before republishing it in 2015. Yes. At the time of Medusa's first release, what did the world of romance publishing look like? Like, what world were you entering into with the, this release? Um, so it was really interesting. Uh, the bubble had just really formed with indie um, publishing. So there was this kind of rush to figure out indie publishing and a few were just going gangbusters, you know, there, Marie Force and um, Bella Andre and mm-hmm. Liliana Hart. These, these names kind of became just, you heard them over and over again with kind of a sense of awe because they were doing this incredible thing. And those that were not quite there um, business savvy wise and tech savvy wise um, were also being approached by small presses. And that was a huge surge. So it was, you, you, couldn't do indie or you weren't quite ready yet and you weren't getting in with the larger publishers. So the small press became kind of a um, way to get published uh, where you weren't completely responsible for it on yourself, but you didn't get the distribution that you would get on a large um, scale from a large house. So lots of new models were coming out. Um, You had to kind of be agile, the whole concept of, you know, just sending it in and hoping that you would get in with the big publishing house. There was a break in a lot of the romance community. Some people kind of looked down on indie. Um, I think there's still some of that. Um, and others, you know, it was like, you can only be traditionally published to actually be a romance author. So it wasn't that it was contentious. It was just so many new things were happening that it was, you had to constantly, like you were saying earlier about being on social media, or you'd miss something. You had to constantly stay plugged in um, and just kind of listen and roll with it. You had to get that thick skin immediately um and just try things um and yeah the so crescent moon press was a small press um they're they no longer exist um and they were my first my first publishing house and they were they were new so we were all kind of learning together and so there were some you know missteps and everything but having your first book in your hands oh my gosh I can't quite describe how how awesome that was (laughs) So with Crescent Moon Press, I mean, did they take 
a little bit of everything? Was there a specific subgenre they looked for? They were primarily paranormal. So most of the stuff that they did, I, as a matter of fact, I don't think they did anything that wasn't paranormal. It was all, um, you know, the, the covers were very edgy and dark. Um, lots of uh, witches and shifters. Um, and then there was a couple that had different, like there was an Egyptian mythology series. So they were, they specialized in um paranormal and one of the, the authors now that lynn rush who's super successful she she was one of the first authors there too so um they really did try i think it, i just can't even imagine trying to be one of the first houses in an industry that's new but is already getting just so competitive you know mm-hmm. yeah one of the questions that i have had the more we hear about these smaller presses and it may be a very simple answer and it may be really difficult, but like Mm -hmm. what happened to them? Like why, what, you know, what would cause of them to not be successful? Cause romance is so big. Yeah. Um, so this is purely my speculation. Um, I think that, there are some small presses that are still flourishing um, and doing well. And that's because they realize that even though they are a small press, they do have to be very aware of marketing, i.e. covers and edits, which a lot of times um, are contracted out. And sometimes they're not as tight as they should be. Readers pick that up. Readers are pretty brutal about edits. And so those kind of things, especially a lot of times with small press, they have to charge substantially more for print because it's the print on demand format. Um, so, um, I think Medusa, um, originally was like 1499 for a print and no one's going to pay that. And why should they? And they're not on the shelves in a bookstore because Mm -hmm. it's a small press so they don't have mass distribution. So that is a hindrance because, you know, a lot of people impulse buyer, they like to go to bookstores. Well, those books never could get on the shelf when you bought them yourself and took them to the store, a lot of them would let you do a signing there. Barnes and Noble was great about that at the time. Um, but it was an expense that you encourage to then turn around and sell them. Um, and I don't think a lot of them in that stage, eBooks were still so touch and go um, that I think there was this confusion on marketing. It's like, okay, do we focus on the print version, even though we're charging a ridiculous amount, um, or do we try and sell eBooks? And so I think a lot of them floundered um, because of that. If they, I think if the ones that are the most successful, they realize that most of their sales are going to be on ebook if they can't get in the bookshelf. It just makes sense, right? So mm-hmm. really push the ebook stuff um, because it's much less overhead. Uh, and now, obviously, it's a voracious appetite for ebooks. So, um, but I think in the beginning, there was kind of a, con- a conundrum as far as what avenue to sell. Um, and then the, the polished product, a lot of them were very much mass quantity. So you could tell um, from the covers and the edits, uh, that they just kind of been pushed through because they were just trying to get as many books out a month. Um, and I think that was a downfall for a lot of them. That was a really long answer. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's so fascinating. And thank you for Mm -hmm. answering because I mean, just when we're like researching to talk to you all, we'll see these small press names and we're like, 
okay, this is another one we haven't heard of. And yeah, then you're yeah. like, well, what happened to them? Yeah. Yeah. No, they, um, I don't exactly know what happened with Crescent Man Press. I know something happened because it was very much a, they were there and then they weren't. Um, and, and I got my rights back for those books. So I went ahead and republished them, you know, and depublished them after I, you know, kind of changed them up a little bit because you have to change them when you republish. Um, but so that's, that's a good thing that I have them because I, I love that series. And there's two more that I'm hoping eventually someday <laughs> I will have out there. Um, but yeah, so um, conversely, another small press that I wrote for um, was Inkspell. Um, and they, they're still going strong. So mm. there you go. Okay, good. I, I saw them too. And I'm like, what is this ink spell? <laughs> so you were writing during the time when people were kind of skeptical on ebooks. Do you remember mm-hmm. like when that shift happened and like as an author, what that felt like? Yeah. Um, it wasn't for quite a few years. Uh, I would say really and I could be way off here because I still am like, it's 2021. What? Um, <laughs> but I want to say it was really around 2015, 2016, when okay. everybody seemed to have finally figured it out, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, it was no longer this kind of, oh, this isn't going to work. This is going to go away. It was suddenly a, wow, this could be a hugely lucrative industry. Um, so yeah, let's capitalize on that. So um, to me... The ebook obviously changed um, publication because readers could read it a bit faster. Um, it was a little more accessible, right? You didn't have to go out and buy the book. Boom, it was right there. Uh, and so I think that it changed the length between books that authors were expected. I think there is a much faster turnaround on stories than there was um, about that time. And so it did change the landscape. I, this again, my personal opinion, um, but it went from, you know, one or two books a year to, Hey, to really stay in the algorithms on Amazon. Um, you know, four year, four books a year, five books a year, six books a year. What can you do? You know, how fast can you write a book kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are these big names, obviously that that is not what they have to do to keep, um, themselves relevant, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's super competitive. Ebooks have made things super competitive. And as well as um, the indie publishing aspect of that, right? Because there's millions of books out there, millions, um, which is great, but um, not all are created equal, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I have, I've heard like another author on another podcast talk about like that do like just straight, I guess, Kindle Unlimited. Yeah. Like you to stay relevant. That's why. And it made so much sense because I have authors that I like follow that just write ebooks, you know, mm-hmm. ebooks first. And yeah. I'm like, man, they put something out like every three months. Like every time yeah. I look up, there's a new novella. And it's like to stay relevant or yeah. the algorithm will like bury you. You yeah. have to constantly be putting something out. And it's, it's like, wow, I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah. It's huge. And I think that um, there is a certain amount of pressure because even with big publishing houses now, they have scaled back a lot on marketing. So an author is responsible for learning how to market. And if you're indie, then you're having to figure out these algorithms, right? Because you want to stay on top of the curve. Um, But if you're with a publishing house and you're still having to do marketing, it's frustrating because you can't put ads out. It has to be the publishing house that does it unless you have Mm -hmm. some kind of deal worked out with them. So your hands are tied to a certain extent. Um, and as we've just discussed, there are millions of books out there. So 
the fight to stay um, front and center, or at least just, you know, providing and, and reaching your faithful readers, it's, it's a job too. And writers are now expected to do that. So not only did I spend like seven months writing the book, now I have to market it myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, and that's when we writers, you know, start taking classes on Amazon ads and Facebook ads. And, you know, um, there's all sorts of academies out there that are basically specifically designed um, to teach you that, but you need to stay on top of that because those algorithms change probably every six months or so. So it's wow. fun. <laughs> So where did the inspiration for Medusa come from to give her a love interest or give her a romance of her own? She has always been one of those characters that I loved. I, I was one of those super awkward, nerdy kids. I was We were not a very well-off family at all. I was a food stamp kid. So for me, fantasy books and coloring books were a huge thing. And so she was just this kind of, you know, surviving chick who was really horribly wrong she she never wanted to be a monster i mean her origination story obviously right she was just stuck between rivaling three gods and paid a horrible consequence for it um and so my concept was you know everyone thinks of her as this monster and you know clash of the titans one of my all-time favorite movies the original right not the new one the new one's fine but the original was amazingly bad and i watch it whenever i can um you know they paint her as this horrible thing and i'm like okay she what happened to her was not her fault. She was a victim in every sense of the way. And so I wanted to give her um, kind of a, a sense of redemption. And so the story was just one of those kind of, I'm very into music. And as I was driving actually one night to my critique group, um, I don't know if you guys know Florence and the Machine. Yes, okay. my husband loves them. Okay. So um, I think it's, is it Cosmic Star? I think that's the song. I think so. Anyways. Um, I would play her really, really loudly because it took me about 45 minutes to get from my home to our critique group, which was great because I had toddlers everywhere. So it was like my time. Um, and I was blasting it and I saw this vision in my head. I know that sounds cheesy, but when I'm writing, it's like I'm seeing a movie play out um, of this man running across a field and the sky was like just turning. It was like a tornado overhead, but it was fire and the ground was shaking and he looked so terrified and yet determined. And he stops and he's looking up and the clouds part and this woman is falling and he has to catch her because a huge hole opens up between his feet. And the image was so like, I couldn't shake it. Um, and I, after that, I kind of pieced together who she was and who he was and that was Medusa. And it, it was just something that writing, I wrote that book so quickly because I was just consumed by the images of it. Um, and that song and um, uh, Adele's Set Fire to the Rain, those mm -hmm. two songs, I don't, where, yeah, wherever I am, I am immediately seeing images from my book. It's ridiculous, but it's true. <laughs> In 2014, you published a young adult contemporary romance, Cowboys and Kisses, with yes. Inkspell Press. Where did the idea for the story come from? Well, we had just uprooted our family from a small town in North Texas 
um, to San Antonio. And it was a huge change for my kids. Huge. I, I mean, they had grown up their entire life in this small town. And so a lot of the heroin alley is very much a combination of my two daughters <laughs> and what they went through um, when we moved here. And I mean, I think that even I was having some struggle with the relocation. So the angst that she went through was very cathartic. Um, and I wanted to write something that my kids could read because most of my stuff is, is adult. Um, they, even though they're now all adults, they still don't read me. And I respect that. I'm their mom. That would be weird. But for me, it was kind of a chance to say, hey, I get where you're coming from. I know this is not what you wanted, but it'll, you know, it's going to be okay. And, and now we're all perfectly content and happy where they are. But um, so, yeah, it was kind of a, I don't know, maybe just something that I felt I needed to write for them. Did they read it? No, but you know, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, it's out there. If they ever want to read it. Exactly. And it's weird because I have some fans um, for that book. And of course I have a second book that's half done, half done, not fully done. Um, that are just, they will email me regularly. When is the next book coming out? Because they really loved it. And it's such a different um, genre and different market YA is mm-hmm. that I, I often wonder if it's if it's something that I should do. You know what I mean? It's like the stories are never a problem for me. I have way too many stories in my head, but it's just making sure that I'm not throwing my readers off by writing all over the place, which I do. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that they're, like Sarah and I talked about this back when we were prepping to do like a young adult category episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, YA is so powerful and there are some really like impactful stories. I just, sometimes I'm like, I want more cute young adult romances. Yeah. I yeah. feel like it, there is this huge movement right now where it's all really powerful stories yeah. and yeah. fantasy. And I'm like, where's the romances? I remember being like, I went, my favorite age was 17. Like I want those stories. Yeah. Like, no, I totally agree. Love. Yes, I totally agree. And that, that was another thing. I knew that it would be a hard sell because most ways are paranormal, but I yeah. will tell you about a recommendation and you might've read it. It's an old book, but it was um, called Anna and the French Kiss. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's As like a YouTube darling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Etienne St. Clair, I still remember the boy's name. I mean, that book to me was just exactly what you're talking about. You know, it was mm-hmm. real life. There was some angst in it that you totally related to all the characters. Um, I, I still have a hardback copy of it. I love that book. Love that book. One of my favorite books this summer was Sunkissed by Ka- uh, Casey West. Okay. It's a YA retelling of Dirty Dancing. Oh, how fun. Sunkissed was delightful. Uh, Casey West, Cassie West, how do you say her first name? Yeah. Um, The following year in 2015, you published A Cowboy's Christmas Reunion, book one in your Boons of Texas series with Harlequin as part of their American Romance line. The line transitioned into the Western line after book two, Twins for the Rebel Cowboy. For any of our listeners who have yet to read an American Romance Western Romance, how would you describe the line to them? Um, It is, I mean, it is what it is. It's very much a cowboy focused, ranch focused, family centered uh, line. It was all all cowboys all the time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Lots of ranches, lots of rodeos, um, lots of, you know, fixing those fences and, and, you Mm -hmm. know, loading up hay. Um, But I'm married to a cowboy. He has a ranch. So it was great um, because it's, it is part of my life. So it was a natural fit for me. And I had 
um, the luck of finding she is my soulmate and I, I still have her as my editor, the best editor um, at uh, Harlequin. And we just clicked, you know, how you'll meet someone and you'll just click. And not only did we click on the page as far as edits, but um, we are really good friends. I'm very blessed to have her in my life. So she was, she's been instrumental in helping me stay uh, really plugged in to to Harlequin and being aware of what they're looking for and helping me figure out how to anticipate things. So I was really happy that I've been able to stay um, with Harlequin because it's they they take care. In my experience, again, and um, they take care of their authors, and I'm, I feel very privileged to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about your journey to becoming published with Harlequin? Sure. Yeah. So I had been, I, I went to a lot of romance writer conferences back around uh, from between 2011 and 2015. It was like, if there was one in Texas or close, I was going. Um, and I was able to volunteer at one in Houston. And my job was to help people that were going to quote unquote pitch their book to um, the editor or agent that was there at a table. And I couldn't believe it, but not all the spots were filled up. And I uh, went in to kind of entertain this agent who didn't have anybody at the time. And we, we started talking. She was super, super sweet and um, asked me what I wrote. So we just started talking about my career. And she was like, you know, as I was just telling her anecdotes about my life, she's like, why don't you write that? And I was like, would anybody want to read that? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the idea for the Boons um, and the veterinary school, because I'd worked at Texas A&M's veterinary hospital for years, um, she was like, you need to use these stories. You need to use your husband. You need mm -hmm. to put this together. And that series sold within weeks. Uh, when I finished that first book, wow. um, it was, I was expecting to have to wait for a really long time. And I know that it was a very, you know, rare instance that you hear that quickly, but it just happened to hit all of the notes that they were looking for. And so I credit that agent for that. Um, and yeah, it got me in the door. And I think that's the way it is with Harlequin. Harlequin really does love to keep their authors, thankfully. Um, it's just, you know, staying consistent and really trying to write, you know, they'll put out their calls and what they're looking for. So you just, you want to kind of, I don't want to say write to what they're looking for, but you do want to be aware because they know what's selling. And ultimately that's part of writing, right? Is selling mm -hmm. your book. So yeah. yeah. You also wrote for Harlequin's Blaze line. How did writing <laughs> for that line come to be? And those, I love those books. <laughs> I'm heard, like you're our first Blaze author. Yeah. <laughs> well, no pressure. So, <laughs> so I do. Um, I like writing spicy. Um, and you know, my uh, Greek mythology series was had some pretty intense stuff in it. And it wasn't that they had never said they'd said to me, you know, don't don't do super spicy. But it just didn't seem as um, logical in the American and Western. I mean, there's some scenes of intimacy on the page, but it's it's more, you know gentle and yeah. short and concise. Um, whereas Blaze was like, yeah, no, we want, we want the deets. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just a really fun, I love those two books. They were super hot, um, which was what, you know, I mean, hello, the line is Blaze, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it was just a great departure because I wasn't writing anything paranormal. And a lot of times we'll have multiple projects going on at once. And I, I love to have something, I like to be working on different things at the same time, if that makes sense, so that like if I get where I'm feeling stale and when I can kind of go someplace else, does that make sense? I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. But um, so, you know, it was kind of nice to have something that was super 
hello <laughs> versus <laughs> okay let's get this baby up on this saddle you know what I mean it was yeah. just very um very different and um the characters were great and I was so sad I the first one came out and went audio it did really well the second one came out and the line was closing um so mm-hmm. it didn't do very well and I was so sad because I had all these other books lined up right I was like oh yeah we're gonna do this and this um so that was my very short my short experience with Blaze, but um, it was fun. It was really fun. And so how would you describe it to someone who hasn't read a cult classic Blaze? Um, I would say that a Blaze is definitely sizzle on the page, but still um, focused and centered in the heart. Um, because as wonderful and exciting as all of the, you know, physical part of it is um, that you get to read about, at the end of the day, it is still a love story. So you talked a little bit about this, about switching back from, you know, American romance to the blaze, Uh but you know, other than having a change of pace, was there anything else? What was your experience like writing for both of those series at the same time? Well, the great thing again, is I had the same editor once you're in in Mm -hmm. Harlequin, you get to keep the same editor. So Johanna and I, um, it, she just was really like, oh my gosh, this is, this is so great. You can totally write this. Um, so it was pretty painless. Um, I had those going on at the same time and it, they were so, even though they're both contemporary romance, they were such different worlds and different vibes um, that it was really kind of fun to bounce back and forth between the two of them. You know, obviously you had to be aware when you're marketing. <laughs> they're slightly different. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, kept things, I think for me um, feeling refreshed because um, it was nice to, to have that change. Mm-hmm. Well, shout out to your editor because she's so supportive and like the best. Yeah, she is. I know. I just, I adore her. I adore her. She's just, yeah, I can't say enough good things about her. Okay. In 2017, you published Mm -hmm. Falling for the Billionaire Wolf and His Baby. Which is like the longest title in in history. (laughs) It's book one in your Blood Moon Brotherhood series with Entangled Publishing as part of their Entangled Covet line, which I am currently obsessed with their Covet line. Um, Yes. Um, Can you share with us what the series is about and how you came to be writing for Entangled? Sure. It's kind of a funny story. Um, One of the editors there was a friend of mine and she's like, why don't you write for me? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I was like, you know, what are what are you guys looking for right now? And she's like, you know, we're really looking for something, you know, super domineering man, you know, kind of the whole billionaire vibe, but different, which is such a standard thing to hear in um, the writing world, right? The same, but different. If you haven't heard that, that's kind of the tagline. We want the same, but different, um, which makes sense, right? Because when we read romance, we know what we want, but we want to have it different, told mm-hmm. us to it in a different way. And I was like, so you mean like, oh, I don't know, a billionaire werewolf? And she's like, yes, write that. <laughs> <laughs> did I ever turn on writing werewolves? No. Am I? Did I? Yes. <laughs> and they were so much fun, y'all. Oh my gosh. Um, I love that series. It was very much, you know, giving me the whole Blaze vibe because obviously werewolves, mm-hmm. alpha, very dominant. Um, but I, you know, I got to write a baby werewolf. Hello. How much fun is that? Um, <laughs> it was, it was great. It was a really fun series and actually, um, they're going to audiobook. So that's really fun. Yay. Yeah, I know. So you published book one in mm-hmm. your Drivers of Last Stand series, Sweet yes. on the Cowboy with Thule Publishing. So you're, I mean, a girl all over the place. Yeah, you're, uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> and this this is part of their Texas born line. So it's yeah. I love seeing these different like series names that the different publishers have. So yeah. how did you come to write titles for Thule? And you can you talk about the writing of this series? I don't know if you guys have. I hope you have um, interviewed Jane Porter. She is, um, you know, she writes a lot of the Harlequin Presents. And she is this kind of powerhouse of a superwoman. She is beautiful and talented and kind and just, she's super motivating. Well, Tuli is her baby. Um, Every year I I look for a new Jane Porter Christmas romance for Tuli. (laughs) She's amazing. Um, And so she, we were at a conference together and she saw that I was writing for um, the American line. And at that point they had just said that that was going to be closing. Um, And she's like, well, do you have an interest in writing for, you know, me for cowboys and I was like heck yeah so um yeah so that was the way it came about um and you know a lot of these characters because I had been in the the Boone mindset for so long they felt familiar I mean it was a very different family but um sweet hill country town and um I actually have another book that will be coming out in that series um hopefully next year oh yay yeah yeah with Thule Publishing, you also have your Welsh Sisters series, which is part yes. of the, their American Heartline. The second book specifically has one of the best fall covers we've ever seen. Yes. Yes. I'm actually reading it next month. It's on my TBR. I can't Yay. wait. Sarah, I feel like we should say like one of the only fall romance covers we Thank have. you. Thank you. <laughs> No. Oh, we want more full romance. <laughs> I know. I know. And honestly, that was part of it was she was like, you know, hey, we need some some not as done holiday books. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, Valentine's Day, which was Dogcart Sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I was like, something folly. And, you know, there's so many fun fall festivals. I was like, yeah, let's do them. Yes. So she liked the ideas. Um, and sadly, it was just two sisters. So it's like, gosh, hmm, can I pull a cousin out of thin air? <laughs> 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 but it was just kind of again the the whole they're they're sweet they're there's nothing on the page um super sweet uh very hallmark you know if i could have them made into a hallmark maybe there would be none of that kind of line editing that they would need to worry about very very sweet um and it was just a lot of fun because it was kind of the thing where um you could just step in you felt like you were visiting this great little small town with these wonderful people and when it was over you could sit at the side with a smile on your face and and that was what i wanted to um, give and I think it works. Why uh, I we know because Sarah and I we love Christmas romance and I mean this year we were just like mm-hmm. on the computer at the same time on a Saturday and we're like looking at what's coming out and she, I think it was July and Sarah's like we have Christmas romances coming out already in August. Yeah, yeah. And we some so as readers we're just assuming okay September through December is Christmas market. Yeah. What? <laughs> What is it about? I mean, what is it with romance and autumn time that just don't go together? You know, I I just think it's um I think there's this push because traditionally Christmas romances were so popular. So I think a lot of us just was like you know the obvious thing is to write a Christmas book, never really taking into consideration that there's you know months that are going by that nobody's <laughs> talking about. Um, and then you know there was this big push for the whole Christmas in July, so. Christmas kind of became this huge saturation point. Um, and, you know, technically, yes, it works. But at the same time, um, yeah, there's there was kind of this void uh, for fall stuff. And I'm hoping that more people will write fall things because Christmas books are great. But, you know, other stuff would be good. Yeah. 
The one thing I'm noticing is, and I noticed this last year with uh, a number of books that I read, they would start like at Halloween and then the book would transition all the way to Christmas, which is fine. Right. However, Christmas was like the last chapter, but yet the cover was like Christmas. And Brie and I call those fake Christmas romances. No. Really Christmas. (laughs) No. And see, and that's the horrible thing. If you're with a traditional publishing house, you have no say so. One of my Mm -hmm. covers, which is Twins for the Rebel Cowboy, which is one of my favorite books. It's the second in the Boone series. There are these two adorable little twin babies on the cover. They're not Mm -hmm. born. They're not born in the book. (laughs) (laughs) She goes into labor. imaginary babies. That's right. She goes into labor. You know, they might actually like be there for the last two pages, but they're definitely not big enough to be sitting up in in bumpos with cowboy hats on. You know what I mean? So yeah, marketing, I guess what they do, and I I do know they go to these big marketing meetings and they're like, okay, this is how we're going to package it. This is how we're going to sell it. And I get it. But like you're saying, I think sometimes, oh, oh, perfect example. Um, My, uh, was one of the Texas Cowboys and Canines. It was their rancher protector. The cover mm-hmm. is these two little girls and they're cuddling a puppy on the cover. Yes. A reader, a reader emailed me all and said, the blurb says there's three little girls. Why are there only two girls on the cover? <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. And I, I apologize. I said, no, you're right. Cause the baby is very important in the book and she's absolutely adorable. And I'm like, you're, you're so right. I'm so, you know, it really bothered her. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Um, it's, it's not, I didn't, I don't have any input on that, but you were, you were correct. So it's interesting, um, you know, how it can come across to some people. Covers are super important. That whole thing about judging a book by its cover, that is so not true. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. I know. I know. It really, it really upset her. And um, whenever I get emails from readers, I always try to, you know, give it the attention and the merit because they took the time, something about it upset them. And I would never want to ever feel like I'm like, whatever, (laughs) you know, I mean, it means so much and it it bothered her enough that she wanted me to know. And I'm like, I appreciate that. (laughs) So (laughs) with the last Boons of Texas series book, did you get your rights back and change the cover? Cause it has a totally different cover. Unfortunately, that was their decision. Um, and I, yeah, it really makes me sad because nobody realizes that's the last book in the series. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. look like. Yeah. I've had people like say, you know, why why doesn't Renata get her book? Because that's the sister through the whole series. You're waiting for Renata to get her book. Sure. Um, and it's like, um, this is it. And so even in some of the graphics that we have, I'll have to go in and put the, the last one up and say, don't forget, this is the last one. Because American had closed, they were trying to figure out a way to market it without branding it that way. And it just, yeah, you, you don't, there's no connection there. And it, it's, it's frustrating because there were a lot of people that didn't realize that that was her book. So they just thought that I had not given her story, which I would never oh. do because I was like, she has to have her romance. <laughs> I even went on Harlequin's website and I was like, that doesn't yeah. even look like a Harlequin cover. No, it doesn't. I actually think it's a beautiful cover, it but um, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't scream Harlequin. You're right. A hundred percent. Wow. Okay. I know. So this year we have two source book releases, the first yes. two books in a new special edition series by you and the first book in a new heartwarming series. So yes. <laughs> the release months are staggered and you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but they, they aren't very far apart from one another. So as readers, right. we see, okay, we're getting multiple releases from Sasha this year, but as the writer, can you share how you're balancing the writing of these multiple books? 
<laughs> balance. What's that? <laughs> no. uh, any of my, my wonderful writing friends will say that I am terrible, and I am. I'm a terrible procrastinator. I always bite off more than I can chew. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's. I haven't quite figured out the balance part of it yet. I just kick in and have to, you know, I'll, I'll think about something for a really long time and I'll make notes and I'll, and then I'll be like, oh my God, this is due in two weeks. And I write <laughs> and I'm like, nobody talk to me. I'm not going to take a shower or eat or anything for two weeks. Leave me alone. Um, honestly, that's pretty much my process. It's, it's sad. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, but these I knew, I mean, the good thing is with the traditional publishing house, you write them well in advance. So the, mm. the source book series I had finished, um, you know, almost a year prior. So even though they were released, boom, 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 you know, again, that's the the publishers are the ones that set that schedule. So they all just kind of happened to fall in that very close domino. I mean, it was a lot of books this year, um, but they're all very different. You know, the special edition are akin to me in the American because they, they specifically um, have cowboys in them. So they yeah. were very much like writing uh, the American or the Westerns. Um, the heartwarming was my first and Y'all, I had so much fun writing that book, that whole series. And, you know, I'm done with the series now. There's three of them. And I don't want to say I'm done with the series because I love Garrison, Texas is the name of the town. And I want to live there. So um, it was such a great series. <laughs> with special edition, you've gotten books one and two. Uh, we've uh-huh. gotten books one and two in the... <laughs> the Texas Cowboys and Canines. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. No, don't worry. <laughs> which is book one in your Cowboys of Garrison, Texas series with the heartwarming line. How did writing for both series come to be? It was one of those things where when the lines closed, I didn't have any contracts whatsoever. And as a writer, I was panicking, right? Because again, we were talking about this earlier, you have to stay relevant, right? You have Mm -hmm. to stay uh, producing. So I put together some pitches and didn't hear from one, put together some pitches for the other. And then of course, what? They want both. You know, so I find out both at once and I'm like, okay. So they're very similar and then they're both um, Texas towns and cowboys, but I made sure that the, the towns themselves and the families themselves were very, very different. Um, and Garrison, again, is super, super sweet. I mean, again, it could, they could easily become Hallmark movies, wouldn't that be wonderful? Whereas the special edition, um, they do have more of the on the page stuff. Again, not explicit by any means, but you definitely have the, the intimacy. Well, let's get into our writer questions. I'm just, <laughs> we were like, oh, we can't wait to hear her, her answers to these. Okay. <laughs> Early bird or night owl, what time of day do you feel most productive with writing? Honestly, it, it's either or. It really just depends on where I am deadline wise, because mm-hmm. I try to give myself uh, a daily word count. So if I haven't met it, then I just, I have to. Um, I'm really trying to stick with that to try to not get behind. Um, so if I'm up and the dog isn't awake and chewing on me, and um, <laughs> I've got a few minutes, I'm going to write at night. I do admit that I am not the night owl I used to be. Oh my gosh. I used to be able to write until two and three in the morning. Now maybe midnight, you know, so I guess yeah. more of an early bird. I admire you for even that. I'm like at not 10 o'clock. I'm dead to the world. <laughs> I turn into a pumpkin at that point and that's about it. <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> Are you a plotter or a pantser? 
a very loosely plot, very loosely. So I just need to know how to get from A to B and my dark moments. I, I don't like going too deep because I know this is going to make me sound a little weird, but um, I, I like to, I don't want to say have surprises along the way, but if I, if I plot it too detailed, then it's kind of like I'd lose interest in writing it because I already know everything that's going to happen. Yeah. You've um, already written it pretty much. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I leave room for, for wiggles and stuff to happen along the way. If it's a project you've already been working on, do you reread over the previous day's work before beginning? Not the whole thing, but yeah, in order to get kind of back in, in the frame of mind, I'll read like the couple of paragraphs leading into it just to kind of be like, okay, this is where we're picking up. Um, but I won't go back and read over the whole thing because goodness, that would just take too much time. Yeah. Are there any necessities you need around while you're writing? No, I have a dog. I have a puppy. So now I just write wherever she's going to let me sit and write. You know, before I used to have like this office and stuff, but yeah, no. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned a writing goal. So what yes. is your, your daily writing goal? Um, I'd like to try to make 5,000 words a day, but I have some really great days that are like 10,000 and that makes me really, really happy. I just have to, you know, pace myself, obviously, because um, now that I'm doing some of the dictating, it's a little less painful, but you know, you can really hurt your wrists and your hands if you go at it that long, that often. What got you into dictating? I was listening to Maisie Yates and I'm sure you guys know her um, and she's so um, prolific. She and Caitlin Cruz, um, they just, and they swear by it. They were like, you know, we can do things while we're, we're, writing it. And I'm not, I'm definitely not up to speed where they are because that's how they do it predominantly because I am such a visual person. So it's like, even if I'm dictating it, I still want to look at the screen and that kind of defeats the purpose. Right. So, um, cause if I'm standing there staring at my computer and talking, <laughs> it's kind of like, Hmm, I'm not sure this is really more efficient. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. <laughs> So out of my own personal curiosity, and I'm sure that we have a lot of listeners who'd be interested. How does the, that software work? What did you call it? The dragon something? Yeah. Uh, dragon speaking. Um, and I just, you, it, it basically, when you open your word, um, I have a, a dictating headset that I bought that they recommended and it's wireless because technically I was going to be able to walk around. Right. And, mm -hmm. and not worry about it, which still really hasn't happened. Um, but it basically, um, it just, takes what you say. Now, I did not realize I am learning this and you probably have picked on it since I'm talking to you guys, but I have a little bit of a tongue thrust. So when I am dictating at the last time, y'all, I sent in my, um, my manuscript to my, thank God she loves me, editor. <laughs> and I hadn't read over some of what I dictated. Oh my gosh. I, I should have saved it. I should have kept a snapshot of it because she emailed me and she's like, Sasha, I have no idea what you're trying to say. <laughs> and it had basically put words that it sounded like what I was saying, but it made no sense. And it was kind of terrifying. So I told her I dictated. And of course she laughed and I laughed. But so now I'm having to be very aware of my enunciation or <laughs> bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> so other than the dictation software, is there any other special programs you use for writing? No, I, I wrote one book in Scrivener and I loved it. And I don't know why I've never used it again, but I haven't. I'm a creature of habit there and um, I use Word. I do, um, I had found, uh, it's Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R, no E in there. And it is basically what it sounds like. It's a plotting um, kind of database. I don't really use it for plotting. I use it for creating uh, digital character Bibles so I can list all of my characters in each of my different 
series because I have a lot and I don't want to get confused. Um, and it also is a great, just, it's a really quick, easy reference to go back and do it that way. So I, I have started to use that pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. You find yourself stumped on a scene. Who mm-hmm. do you call? What do you do? I will either get up and go for a walk around the house or let the dog run around in the backyard because sometimes just getting away from it. Um, if I can, a long car trip. I know that sounds really weird, just kind of driving around with music on. Um, a shower, or I have a couple of friends that um, Terry Wilson, Jolie Navarro, um, that I call frequently for plotting. Um, McKenna, Janine, you know, they're they're people that they will listen and bounce, and um, it that you know. But I try to make that again a last resort because they're all writers too, and I know that they have their own stuff and their own deadlines, and so we're all very aware of supporting one another without trying to ask too much of each other. If that makes sense, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, some backlist questions. Uh-huh. Which book from your backlist do you remember laughing the most while writing? Oh my goodness. Laughing the most while I wrote it. I did really laugh a lot for um, Sweet on the Cowboy, which is mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the first draggers, which I love that cover, by the way. Oh my gosh. To me, it looks like a movie poster. I just adore it. Um, <laughs> because because the hero, um, the heroine has two twin girls and they're obsessed with fairies. So there's this whole scene where the hero is wearing, and he's this big cowboy, I mean, manly man. He and his manly man brothers are all wearing fairy wings. And it's, <laughs> it's terrible. And of course, you know, they're adorable. And one of them has a little speech impediment and they call him cowboy man. I mean, it was just so cute. It was like, again, my husband is really stoic. And so he's oftentimes when I have a stoic hero, kind of me imagining him. So it made mm-hmm. me giggle a lot to imagine my husband wearing fairy wings. Yeah. Just Aww. <laughs> <laughs> which book from your backlist was the toughest to write oh man okay the third werewolf book um <laughs> I was I was really torn on the ending I knew that I only had a three book deal so there are two more wolves and believe me I have heard about it that didn't get their story because there's five mm-hmm. in the pack so I was having to end the series when for me it wasn't finished so it was hard because I was having to, I don't want to do any spoilers. I was having to do something that I was hoping would happen when the other two got their story. Um, oh, okay. yeah. So that was really hard, right? Because it's like, this is not right. <laughs> but, yeah, okay, there you go. I don't agree with this. Exactly. <laughs> Author's note in the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, into the dedication to all my readers, I didn't agree with it. Yes. No, I know. They, they, they have sent me many an email and I always apologize. And I'm like, I know guys, I know that there are two more men. Maybe I'll self-publish them at some point, but it's just not on my you know radar yeah. right now. Yeah. Is there a book in your backlist that you feel readers have reached out to you about the most? Probably those. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Actually the ones that, um, and they're not super, super backlist, but um, Accidentally Family seems to have really struck a nerve with a lot of my readers. Mm. And I think it's just because um, it's just kind of the visit with a family and I didn't shy away from a lot of stuff that I think a lot of families go through, but I didn't make it so angsty that you couldn't handle it, if that makes sense. So um, a lot of readers have reached out to me on that one and just said, you know, hey, this made me feel like my family maybe wasn't as messed up or, you know, gosh, we can still love each other, even though horrible things have happened. And so it's been really great um, to know that those stories have touched people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Is there a book in your backlist that you feel taught you something about yourself as a writer? This might sound not like the best thing, but, um, you know, I love writing cowboys. I do. But there are times when I really want to write something else. (laughs) (laughs) So it has taught me that um, you you just do it. You know, I mean, it is a job and uh, it's so hard because, you know, as a writer, you're an artist. So what you create is personal and meaningful or it should be right because you want to put a little piece of yourself in it. But at the same time, you have to deliver the product that your um, publishing house has Mm -hmm. expected will be prepared for them. So, um, so yeah, there've been a few times I'm like, I really don't want to write about cowboy hats and boots and horses, but tough. <laughs> so I think that's what it taught me is that you, know, you have, you have to, you have to do it. Um, yeah. and yeah. So. Well, with starting out really with like the mythology retelling, like yes. you really kind of came in with like with, with paranormal yes. and paranormal is really like a subgenre. One of the subgenres that you can do really anything with. Yeah. I mean, Sarah and I have been buddy reading a cowboy vampire series with yeah. one of our girlfriends. So do you, do you ever miss writing paranormal? Okay, y'all. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I can't quite convey how much uh, because this is going to sound really weird. I actually consider myself a paranormal writer. I know okay. most of my stuff is contemporary, um, but I love writing um, paranormal. I love the whole world creation and the rules mm-hmm. and the, the stakes that you can come up with. So I have so many books in a file that I want to publish someday. But right now, um, you know, there's this other saying, and you guys have probably heard it since you're, um, since you're writers yourselves, um, to pick a lane. And they will tell you that over and over again. And it's oh super my important. Gosh, Sarah, yeah. don't we talk about that like every day? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it has to do with marketing and branding because marketing yeah. and branding is so important, right? You want your readers to know that they can count on this from you. So mm-hmm. Sasha Summers um, has, you know, paranormal. She has a sci-fi novella. She has, you know, shifters. She has cowboys. She has women's fiction. She has young adult. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Sorry, she has young adults. So I was like, okay, so I need to stop writing the paranormal under her name and come up with a new pen name to write okay. uh, paranormal moving forward. Yeah. That's so good. that's 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 what I'm doing. Just because I don't want to further any kind of confusion. Um, and mm-hmm. most of my books now are contemporary, so it just makes sense for me to stay in that lane with um, with this brand. But I mean, can we? I mean, just as a reader right? And mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I love paranormal, mm-hmm. but can we just, I mean, as a reader, it would, it looks to me as though it would feel kind of like it would suck. Like this is what I would love to be writing, but logically there's no, I don't want to say there's no place. Cause if Christine Feehan puts something out, I'm going to go, go buy yes. it. She yes. can write paranormal and people are going to buy it. But like, she's an exception, I guess. Yeah. yeah. No. And I mean, I've had, I've had debates back and forth with people. They're like, you know, you've already written paranormal, just go ahead and do it. But I just, I don't know. I I really, you know, again, it's the whole algorithm thing. It's the Mm -hmm. whole trying to do ads. And if they're confused because, you know, down at the bottom of your page where it says also bought, um, if it's all over the place, then the algorithm goes, what? Um, so that's fair. 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a learning curve and I'm, I'm still kind of waffling back and forth, but I definitely, I mean, I have so many stories that I want to write. Um, and I, I want to be able to put them out there and reach people without them getting completely confused. So, mm-hmm. well, then that, let me turn that on you guys. So does it turn you away when you see an author writing in multiple genres or do you just roll with it? Heck no, because I we totally have agree. the authors that we follow that we love. Like, for yeah. example, off the top of my head, Julianne Lindsay. She yeah. writes for the intrigue line, but also writes under the under a pen name like Brie Baker. As soon as I found out it was her, mm-hmm. I was like, this is awesome. Her stuff is amazing. <laughs> and I will just pick up her stuff. I don't care what it is. She can write a grocery list. I'll read it. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. But I mean, and that's what you want, right? You want right? readers to like, yes. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm going to have to check her out now. I could see if you were starting out, like I could understand that. Or I right. could also understand maybe, I, who, I can't remember who we were talking to, Brie, but it was somebody who wrote under two names because one of their things was like really sweet and uh-huh. the other was very spicy. And you know, there's some authors that can do that without even blinking. I have um, a couple of friends who, if you look at their social media, they actually have numerous pages or numerous names with the hashtags between them. So they're not trying to hide anything. Um, no. But it is very clear, like one writes the paranormal and one writes the sweet and one writes the contemporary. So um, so that's another option. Um, but she's also confessed that she has three different web pages and she's like, it just makes her crazy yeah so and i'm like oh my gosh i have a hard enough time as we discussed earlier doing social media for (laughs) do i really want to try and do more i'm like uh this just makes me want to cry (laughs) my really nerdy mind is stuck on okay if once upon a time a thing wasn't selling that makes Mm -hmm. sense right okay Mm -hmm. let's get rid of nocturne because paranormal is dead Right. Right. That's what the publishers think. Marketing's not working. Let's scratch it. But Mm -hmm. that's how long ago. And now people really seem to be wanting. Yeah. You know, I I keep, I I don't want to just be like stuck on paranormal, but like, I feel like romance trends, they have their day and then they go away and then they kind of come back. I can see not wanting to like put money behind something that may not work but like right. how do you I mean paranormal is huge on Kindle mm-hmm. yes huge. oh absolutely <laughs> I would say though and again personal opinion here or observation two things about Nocturne the the word count was short and a lot of mm-hmm. paranormal books are longer because you need yes. the world building to take into consideration yes. and Harlequin really predominantly relies on its paper it's print for sales, not yep. it's e. So you're right. Paranormal is huge in ebook, um, and I don't know if because the majority of the things they put out are contemporary romance. So I think for them, the idea of kind of what we're talking about, trying to be able to launch and support a completely different genre, is just um, is just a lot. So I think they, mm-hmm. I, yeah, that's again what I'm assuming. Is there a book on your backlist that uh, you had to do a lot of research to write? Not really. I mean, I have been very lucky. <laughs> a lot of the <laughs> stuff that I've, I've written. I mean, you know, again, the Greek mythology, because what mm. I tried to do was um, throw in some actual history into it to kind of ground it in reality. Because I think for paranormal books, oftentimes that makes it, you know, that much stronger if there's elements of realism that you can recognize. Um 
so I did some historical research there just because I wanted to have that authenticity, if you will, for my mm -hmm. mythology. I realize that's a paradox, but you know, um, <laughs> so yeah, that would probably be the things I've researched the most. Is there a book in your backlist with a character or scene that still comes across your mind? Yeah, the one I told you about, the one from Medusa, definitely. Um, I think there are a couple of scenes in that series that were just really, um, there's a scene in Hades that I can tell you that just, oh my gosh, I still remember it. Um, they're very visceral books for me. And I like to, I like to put the reader in to the situation. I, I want you to feel like you're there, right? So mm -hmm. these books were pretty visceral. There, There's a lot of I don't want to say violence, but you know, if you've read any Greek mythology, you know, most of them are not yeah. very happy. Um, yeah. So yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of angst and uh, I don't want to say torture, but they go through a lot. So yeah, I would say the Olympus books, I have a scene in each book that will come on me every once in a while. And I'm like, oh my gosh, did I do it justice? You know what I mean? Did it really come across the way I saw it or felt it? I was like chatting with Sarah about it. I was like, retellings are so popular now yes. summers was doing it back in 2012 <laughs> she started the trend <laughs> well I would be so happy if somebody would like you know discover that series because it's just I I love I love those books they're a lot of fun um and you know is it Madeline Miller that's writing um some pretty awesome Greek mythology retellings um so yeah they're they're definitely on the rise have you read, uh, speaking of that, have you read the one by Katie Roberts, uh, Neon Gods? No, I haven't. I have it on my Kindle. I mean, I have so, that's a thing, you know, it's like, I am a huge reader. I know. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things. It's like, okay, so I either put off my word count so you can read this book. I will mm -hmm. tell you a book that totally, I, I had no choice. I read it in two days and I didn't, I went to bed around 1030 and I read until two because I had mm -hmm. to read it. Just so much fun. And yes, I do admit that I have kind of a little thing for Adam Driver, so that helped. Um, but okay. it was called The Seat Filler by Ooh. Soraya Wilson. Yeah. Um, and she's a huge Adam Driver, like Raylo person. And this book was just delightful. Um, I highly recommend it. It was so, so sexy. And yet it was a sweet romance. <laughs> so oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 Really, really good. Up. Yes. The Seat Filler. That's good. <laughs> Is there a book in your backlist you were nervous about re about releasing? I was really, really nervous about the werewolf book. Um, okay. Really. Because it was something that, again, I'd never planned on writing. And um, it was my first book with Entangled. So obviously you don't want to disappoint, you know, your publisher. Um, and my editor was a friend. So there was a lot writing on it. And I, I was really nervous about it. Uh, people liked it. It did, you know, moderately well. So I didn't have to freak out too badly over it but initially yeah I was I was pretty nervous which book in your backlist took the longest to write probably accidentally family um and the only reason I say that is because I wrote the original version and it's gone through some changes pretty substantially because oh my gosh all all the original version made you want to do was just cry it was just it was horrible it was so depressing um, so um I started writing that original gosh probably in 2015 um, and had to go through and really, you know, be like, okay, there's a difference between torturing your characters and torturing your reader. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so yeah, so that one is probably the one. Round out question time. Uh -huh. What is one book you wish you could read again for the first time? What Happens in London by Julia uh, Quinn. <gasps> I love that book. I read that book, you know, probably every other year I'll pull it out. There's love it. some scenes in that book that I just... 
every time I giggle, but obviously it's not the same thing as that first time. Right. Because I remember yeah. that first time just being giddy. So yeah. Tell us about one of your under the bed stories, something you've written that will never see the light of day. It's called brave the storm. <laughs> yes. That's really the title. It is the only historical Western I have ever written. No way. Um, it is single spaced front and back page over 300 pages. Oh my gosh. Written on a brother word processor and saved on a floppy disk. I have one print copy of it. Um, Basically like a novella and a book. Oh, you guys. And it is every cliche. I mean, it's the first book. I wrote it when I was 18. And um, it has every cliche in romance that you could possibly think of. And when I I remember when um, my kids were born and we went and saw Toy Story. It was, um, Woody says, somebody's poisoned the water hole. And I started laughing so hard because guess what my villain does in that book? He poisoned the water hole. So yeah, it's that, that kind of bad, y'all. That kind of bad. What's a romance you've read within the past few years that reminded you of why you love the genre? You know what? I actually have been really lucky. Most of the things I have read, I, I have a very low tolerance. If I make it to the page 25 and I'm not sucked into it, I'll just put it aside and keep going. Uh-huh. Um, it used to be 50 pages. Now it's 25. <laughs> what they always say is that most uh, books, the first three chapters, are the best. So I will yes. give it to chapter four because the first three chapters are what you have to submit to sell a book. Right. Um, so if by chapter four, um, it's starting to peter off. It kind of told me that yeah, chapter five is not going to get any better, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll give you author's names because I couldn't remember all the titles, but mm-hmm. um, Terry Wilson, Julia London, Soraya Wilson, who I just said, Tiff Marsala, uh, Priscilla Oliveris, mm-hmm. uh, Reese Ryan. Oh my gosh. Oh, yes. Um, and I have like a stack of books and Alyssa Cole. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm, there's, I'm sitting there, there's like, there's so many good books. And Victoria um, Shad, I just, I, I think that it's a really great, almost renaissance time for romance, really. There's a mm-hmm. lot of lovely books out there. Who was your teenage celebrity crush? Well, I, he his name was um, River Phoenix. And oh. he's Joaquin Phoenix's um, big brother. He was yeah. a beautiful, talented actor. Most people know him from seeing um, Indiana Jones and the uh, Last, Last Crusade. Crusade. He yep. played young Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, but he was with uh, Kenny Reeves and Johnny Depp. They were they were a big group of really hot young actors at that time period, <laughs> and I adored him. Um, he and Johnny Depp and Kenny Reeves, you know, they were just they're awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he passed unfortunately very way way. Was, was he the guy that died like in front of this like yeah really the Viper, the Viper club? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, that was so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was super sad because he, honestly, I mean, he was in Stand By Me. He just, he had a lot of, um, a lot of talent. Well, He's, but his, yeah. you know, his brother, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, is to me one of the most, I don't know, you He's he's just you can't look away. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is super talented. He's just a he joker. really does dominate yeah. whatever he's in. He does. Yeah. yeah. Him and Gladiator, one of my all-time favorite characters. Oh, my gosh. That's one of my favorite movies that he, as the bad guy and Gladiator, just yeah, we'll we'll quote him every once in a while just for you know giggles because he was just so bad, you know. That's <laughs> so bad it was good. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, I'm sorry, um, Russell Crowe in that movie. That oh, I just love that movie. And I wrote a lot of my Greek stuff to that soundtrack. So there you go. There you go. So maybe this is the answer, but name one film you'll never stop watching. Okay, I love Gladiator, but the one film I will never stop watching is The Mummy. And not this new yeah. hocus pocus junk with what's his name. I'm talking about the real one with Brendan Fraser yes. and Rachel Weiss because yes. that is the only mummy that exists. 
I will watch that if we own it. And if it's on TV, I will watch it. Oh. And I think we have it recorded on our DVR because it's that good. And yes, I, I watched the limited movie. edition bobbleheads. That's how invested I am in oh this. Oh my movie. gosh. Yep. Me and my daughter watch it like I feel like every weekend. That is oh, yeah. our yeah. mom and me <laughs> movie. It's so That's good. Nice. It is. It is like to me, that is the perfect. It, before it was Romancing the Stone because Romancing the mm-hmm. Stone again, perfect story. You've got the action mm-hmm. adventure, you've got the romance. It just hit all the marks. But the cast in The Mummy, yep. they were just so, you loved them. You got sucked on that trip and you did not want it to end. And they were just, it was perfect. It really Absolutely. was perfection. We won't even count the third one when. No, let's not. Once she <laughs> left, yeah, I can't. I don't. That doesn't exist. I'm sorry. Yeah. The second one was eh, but you know I will go with it because at least it was them. That was the only two movies that exist. That's it, right there. Yep. We're not going to mention the Scorpion. When a big star leaves, either a show yeah. or a movie, yeah. yes, yes. Going? you know it's not going to mm-hmm. work. Yeah, because the fans—it's not just the story; it's the people. They see Absolutely. them that way. That's what fandom is all about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if they had changed Dean out and Supernatural, are you telling me this series would have stayed as popular? Exactly. No, no way. You know. <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> i'm sorry it was like yeah i mean if they would have changed the black car i would have been like oh. i'm out it's not supernatural we know better thank you very much yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> what is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on i don't know i'm so easygoing honestly peanut butter and jelly sandwiches shouldn't exist <laughs> i don't eat them so that's my everyday lunch one. I've never had one. It makes me weird, I know, but the whole concept of the two of them together, I just can't do it, even as a child. So there you go. What is one of your favorite romance tropes to read? Okay, to be fair, um, if it's done well, it's my favorite. Because it's all about it, the way it comes across on the page. I mean, the whole thing I was telling you guys about the same but different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I get that. I totally get that. You want it to be different in a way that it grips the reader as if it's something they've never read before. Um, So if a trope is done well, then I'm all in. Okay. When you are writing or whenever, because we know you're a pantser, at what point does the trope, like what the trope is going to be, when do you start considering that? Now it's when I'm starting. Now when I start, I'll have my tropes and I will actually kind of look at my characters and say like, okay, I need to make sure that they have elements of these archetypes because they're going to bounce off each other and they're going to come together because of this. But originally when I was more in the ability to be a panzer, right? Because I didn't have the deadlines that I have now. um, It would kind of lead. My characters always come first. So Mm -hmm. it kind of inherently lends itself to developing a trope based on who they are, right? So, So yeah, that's... That's kind of the way it's, I guess it's an organic thing. The same time now, um, because I have the relationship I have with my editor, every once in a while, she'll be like, hey, you haven't read one of these in a while. You haven't read a secret baby in a while. <laughs> How did you do that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that totally works. So, um, so yeah, it's good when you have someone who knows your stuff as well, because they can be like, yeah, you just did that one. Remember? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah. Can you share with us what you have coming up next? Yes. Um, I have in January, it'll be the end of January. I have the next um, Texas Cowboys and Canines coming out. And the name is escaping me. <laughs> I can't believe that. I feel so bad. Ah! And then I also 
I have the second um, Garrisons of Texas that I'm going to look up the titles right now because that's terrible that I can't remember what they are. Um, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> I have too many books right now. And so they're all over the place because it's like I'm writing one and I'm editing another. And then I had to do the final read through on another. It's it's good. I'm not complaining. It's, it's a just, good problem to have. Exactly. Yeah. But it's the titles that I'm like, I should know this. I should totally. Do you this. do you come up with the titles yourself or do you have like a working title and then your uh, editor um, changes it? No, I don't come up with them. They will ask me for a list of suggested titles. Okay. Um, but they, they normally, they just pick it. Um, because again, it's all about, that's the thing about Harlequin. You know, I used to kind of smile over the titles, but yeah. they, it's the hooks. That's how they work. Um, Absolutely. It really yeah. So the, the rancher's baby surprise, which has mm-hmm. y'all one of the most adorable covers. You have to go look it up. It's a man with a baby on his shoulders and there's a black lab kissing him on the face and it's so stinking cute. Oh. Um, yeah, it's adorable. And then the wrong cowboy. Um, so those two will both be out in uh, the end of January next year. Okay. After that, they have the uh, third um, garrison that to trust a cowboy, which I love it, y'all. Oh my gosh, it's like um, it's you know friends to lovers, pretend relationship, wedding mm-hmm. backdrop. It's awesome. So um, so yeah, that's coming up. And then I have um, my brand new series that uh, I mean I have four more of the Texas Cowboys and Canines that I'm working on. So yay, mm-hmm. they're going to keep oh going. My- Good. And then I um I have a new series that I'm actually writing for HQN. Mm-hmm. It's my first with them. Yeah, I know. I'm excited. And it is gonna be um called Honey uh Honey Texas. And it's about a family of female beekeepers um in oh. Texas. And so I'm taking beekeeping classes right now and doing all sorts of fun research. And I love, love this series already. The hero in the first one. Uh, his name is Dane, and he is based on my favorite muse, of course, Chris Hemsworth. So it's not hard mm-hmm. to write. Just throwing that out there. Oh, my gosh. We cannot wait. Okay, I can't <laughs> wait. I want to read them all now. I don't now. know why I've been thinking about beekeeping lately. Like, I don't know if I saw it on TV, but just hearing you say that, I'm like, I need it. Sarah, we have to read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Seriously. I think it's great. There's been a huge movement because of, you know, it's it's such a necessary thing and our environment is just, it's not conducive to healthy to healthy bees. So we have to help them out. So there's been a huge push and like Angelina Jolie has become a spokesperson for World Bee Day. There's all this stuff. So it's it's timely. And I'm hoping to make sure that I include stuff that is, you know, something mm-hmm. that people can do versus, you know, just writing up with them being beekeepers. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, we're so excited. Yay! For sure. And lastly, where can everyone find you online? Oh, yeah. Um, so my website is sashasummers.com. Pretty easy. Um, on Instagram, I'm sasha.summers, uh, at Sasha Writes on Twitter, and then um, Sasha Summers Author on Facebook. Well, thank you so much. We oh have been gosh, yes. so excited about this all week. It has been such an honor to pick your brain and... Oh nerd it's out been so you. much fun you guys thank you this has been awesome <laughs> yes thank you for for like allowing us to hang out with you on a thursday night yes absolutely <laughs> and for listeners make sure you check the show notes we will have links to all the places where you can follow sasha as well as all the places where you can get her books harlequin mills and boone totally entangled all the places so make sure mm-hmm. you notes all of her stuff will be listed down there and sarah and i will talk with you guys in our next episode thanks for listening everybody have a lovely day